This is the Morning Rush. Coming up on today's show, now that we actually have a show, unlike yesterday. Not my fault, though. So we move on. The Bucks and Hawks play a pivotal game five in Milwaukee. The Washington football team learns its fate after the NFL's investigation into the way that organization is run. We have our starters for uh, the Major League All-Star Game. And today is Friday, in case uh, you didn't know. My main man, Joe Shuda, has another Rush Friday feature. Today, shortly after 7 o'clock, he catches up with former Major League pitcher and Allegheny High School product, Aaron Laffey, is the focus of today's Friday feature. All that stuff coming up in the next two hours of the show. Good morning to you. How the heck are you? So glad to have you on board. So glad you could take some time to tune in and hang out as we kick off a 4th of July weekend. Come on! Already very excited for the 4th of July weekend. Because it's a three-day weekend uh, for me. Hopefully for most people. Uh, Programming note, uh, no show Monday. Won't be here. That's our holiday. So there you go. Several ways to get involved on the show, as always. uh, Hit me up on Twitter at WCMD Morning Rush. At, what's the other one? Oh, it's mine. At Rush... The three-day weekend has already started for me. It started last night at uh, DDB. Uh, At Rush Tony C. Facebook page at uh, WCMD Cumberland Radio. All those pages free and open to the public. Like them. Follow them. Anytime uh, you feel froggy, take the leap and drop me a line. Send me a message, question, comment, opinion, anything we talk about or anything you want to talk about. Feel free. Rush line is open, 301-759-2628, uh, 301-759-2628, your chance to dial and dance on this funky Friday morning. And don't forget about our podcast page on the free Podbean app. We upload every show every day, minus commercials. In case you missed anything, uh, you can go back and check it out, except for yesterday, uh, because there was no show. Uh, technical difficulties beyond my control. I was here. I was here. I was present and accounted for in the studio, prepared, ready to go. Unfortunately, uh, nothing else was. So, that's what is that, twice in a week? It's good times. It's good times. Then today, I couldn't print anything out because the upstairs printer is, you remember, uh, what was it on the movie Office Space? Was it the fax machine that never worked until eventually they took it out in the field and, and destroyed it? With the baseball, remember that? Was it a fax machine? Right. Our upstairs upstairs printer, same thing. Same thing. This thing hasn't worked properly since uh, 2011. And today's issue was, and again, uh, I don't have my new laptop up to speed to use it for the show. So I'm still printing uh, a lot of my notes out the old-fashioned way. So I get one page printed out. Okay, with my weather and stuff on it. 
And then I go to print everything else out, and it's telling me that the printer's out of paper. So I go over, open up the tray, lo and behold, no paper. So I put paper in, shut the tray, I wait, I wait, I wait, and I get nothing. Come back down the hall uh, to the PC, close things out, open it back up, go to print, and the printer message is telling me that there's no paper. It's telling me there's no paper. When I literally loaded paper into the printer a minute before that. So I walk back down the hall. I pull the tray back out. I pull the paper back out. Look for paper jams, no paper jams. Everything looks like it should be working. Put the paper back in the tray, close the tray, walk back down the hall, hit print, no paper. If it ain't one thing, it's 10. That's all I got to say. That upstairs printer will eventually meet the fate of the fax machine in office space. At some point in time. I'm not saying I'm going to be the one to do it, but eventually that printer is going to have an accident. And then we'll go from there. All right. Ah, let's kick off. Let's see here. I got to get myself straight because uh, my Rock Around the Region stuff is here on the left monitor. All my sound bites are on the right monitor. So now I must uh, position myself accordingly. Let's Rock Around the Region. And we start with Major League Baseball, where the Brewers and Pirates opened a four-game series last night in Pittsburgh. Milwaukee was looking to extend their longest win streak in seven years, and it was against the Pirates, so of course they did. Jackie, line drive down the right field line. It's a fair ball and up against the wall on a hop. Jackie digging for second base. Here comes the throw. It's offline. It's an RBI double for Jackie Bradley Jr. The call on WTMJ, 7-2 the final. Brewers win to extend their win streak to nine games, their longest since April of 2014. They have outscored opponents 66-23 during the win streak. Ben Gamble had a home run. Uh, Jacob Stallings had two of the six hits for the Pirates. Uh, Bucks have scored a total of four runs in the last four games. Elsewhere, the Dodgers and Nationals opened a four-game set in D.C., and, uh, well, Mother Nature kind of got in the way. But not before Max Muncy uh, made his presence felt for L.A. No one. Fly ball, right field, and it is gone. A grand slam home run for Max Muncy. The call on AM570 L.A. Sports, second career granny for Muncy, Gave the Dodgers a 6-2 lead in the fifth inning. And that's the way the game ended. A tornado warning forced the game to be stopped before the start of the sixth inning. So L.A. gets the 6-2 win in five. The Dodgers have won six straight games. And Nats had their four-game win streak snapped. Juan Soto and Starling Castro each had an RBI single for Washington. The Orioles were off Thursday. They open a weekend series tonight at the Angels. In high school baseball and softball, the West Virginia AAA All-State teams were announced for both sports on Thursday. In softball, Washington's Maddie Ruffner and Britton, not Britton, <laughs> Brittany. I got, see, I got ahead of myself because I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. 
So as I see the last name, is it Cernate? I'm Italian. We'll call it Cernate. But I jumped too far ahead to the last name, and I end up mispronouncing the first name. My apologies. Uh, Brittany Cernate. We'll go with that. Uh, were first-team All-State selections. Their teammate, Camden Noland, received honorable mention, as did Hampshire's Maggie Odom. On the baseball side, Jefferson put three players on the All-State first team, Riley Vadez, Cullen Horowitz, and Zach Rose. Musclemen's Blake Hartman also named to the first team. Hedgesville's Kyle West was a second-team selection. Hampshire's Grant Landis and West Landis received honorable mention. Congratulations to all of those young men and women for making their respective All-State teams. And speaking of big-time honors, in college football, former West Virginia defensive standout Daryl Talley will become just the fourth Mountaineer to have his number retired. Talley will have his number 90 retired when WVU hosts Texas Tech on October 2nd. He will join a Sam Huff's number 75, Ira Rat Rogers, his number 21, and Bruce Bosley's number 77 as the only numbers to be retired in Morgantown. Uh, Tally was a consensus All-American and is a member of the uh, WVU Athletics Hall of Fame. Still holds the program record with 484 total tackles. And, of course, he went on to have a 14-year NFL career, 12 years in Buffalo, where he is still the Bills' all-time leading tackler. So Tally, number 90, going, I guess it can't go to the Raffers. There's no Raffers in the outdoor stadium, but going up somewhere. Only the fourth player in program history to have a number retired. And that is uh, your Rock Around the Region, brought to you by uh, the Caporelli Group. Uh, one more thing about the Pirates before we move on. The voting ended yesterday. Uh, to pick the starters for this year's All-Star Game in Colorado. And the Pirates' Adam Frazier will be the National League starter at second base. How about that? Speaking of honors, it's an honors kind of day here. Frazier joins Maz, Bill Mazeroski, as the only Pirates' second baseman to start an All-Star Game. Uh, Maz, of course, was a 10-time All-Star with the Buccos from uh, 1958 to 67. Frazier is only the ninth Pirates player to be voted in as a starter by fan voting. Now, this is this blows me away here. The last Pirate to be voted a starter by the fans was Andrew McCutcheon in 2014. Dave Parker, the Cobra, was voted in four times by the fans. Willie Stargell, Andy Van Slyke twice. Then you have McCutcheon, Barry Bonds, Bobby Bonilla, and Roberto Clemente were each voted in as starters once. How does that happen? Now, I understand that when it comes to all-star voting, fans really don't know what they're doing. They don't. They think they do, but they don't. And back in the day, you know, I guess you can still do it. You can still stuff the all-star, you know, box, the ballot, to get your favorite players in. That's why fan voting has always been a farce. It's been a joke. Because it's not really on the up and up. 
fans would just stuff the ballot box to get their favorite players in, whether they deserve it or not. How? And I don't, I'm not necessarily sure when fan voting actually started. So it, that may play into it a little bit. But how does Roberto Clemente only get voted in as a starter once? And again, maybe fan voting, I have to look that up. I'm not sure. But look at those final four names. Bobby, Bobby Bonilla, yeah, okay. But McCutcheon, Barry Bonds, and Roberto. Now look, they made more All-Star games, don't get me wrong. But we're talking about being voted in as starters by the fans. How does Clemente, McCutcheon, and Barry Bonds only get voted in as starters one time each? If you ever, if you ever need proof that fans don't know jack all nothing about all-star voting, that's it. Which is why you should never take the voting that seriously. It's a great honor. Adam Frazier deserving to start fan voting or not. Adam Frazier deserves to be the starter at second base for the National League this year. He's been phenomenal. And I'll give you his numbers here in just a second. So sometimes the fans actually do get it right. But you look at that list. Like, how does, look, no offense to Dave Parker. Dave Parker was an outstanding right fielder for the Pirates. Outstanding. He should be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, by the way. But he gets voted in as a starter four times by the fans, and Bonds only gets in once. Bonds, the same guy who won the NL MVP three years in a row with the Pirates, but he's only a starter in the All Star game once. That's, that's amazing. If I had the time, which I don't, I'd like to go back. Well, I don't have the time now. Later I may. I'd like to go back and see who was actually voted in as starters. Like, what outfielders were good enough to be voted in as starters over Clemente and Bonds and McCutcheon? I mean, seriously. Anyway, back to Frazier. Uh, he led all NL second basemen with 47% of the votes ahead of Atlanta's Ozzie Albies and LA's Gavin Lux. Again, no disrespect to those guys. They're having good years, but they're not better than Frazier. Heading into last night's game, uh, among players with at least, not just second baseman now, not just second, players, total. Among players with at least 330 appearances, plate appearances. Frazier, no, wait a minute, maybe it is second baseman. The, the story confused me here. Anyway, he's batting 329, okay? He has an on-base percentage of 399, OPS of 863. He ranks second in total bases with 137, second in doubles with 24. Frazier is hitting 351 in 48 games since May 8th, which trails only the Reds' uh, Nick Castellanos. He's batting 361 among all National League hitters. Again, not a second baseman, all NL hitters. Frazier also leads the National League and hits from the leadoff spot with 97. So there you go. Adam Frazier, only the second Pirates second baseman ever to be voted in as an all-star starter. Now we got to work on getting Brian Reynolds into the all-star game. Because, again, you can't always trust the fans. So when you really want to see who is deserving of an all-star game, look at the reserves. 
because those are the guys that are picked by the managers. Those are the guys who are picked by people who actually know the game the best. And Brian Reynolds should be an all-star for the Pirates. They should have two on the team this year. And I'm not I'm not being a biased a, bi- a biased is that a word? A biased Pirates fan when I say this. Reynolds ranks second in the National League in on-base percentage, 405. He ranks fifth in batting average, 316. Seventh in slugging percentage, 542. His 960 OPS as an outfielder ranks fourth in all of Major League Baseball. He is hitting 436 with three doubles, four homers, 14 RBI during a 14-game hitting streak that carried into last night. And then they get into this whole this whole war thing, wins above your... I don't know what... I don't care what that is. That's whatever. But apparently he's pretty good with the war thing as well. He ranks third among NL outfielders in wins above replacement. For Take that for what it's worth. So Brian Reynolds should be an all-star. Not deserving to be a starter like Frazier, but the Pirates, <laughs> the lowly Pirates, the team... That has, what, the third worst record in baseball, fourth worst record in baseball? They should have two All-Stars this year. Frazier and Reynolds, absolutely. And I just gave you their numbers, and you can't dispute the numbers. Absolutely should be in Colorado for the All-Star game. Everybody else, meh. I can't think of anybody else. Like, who else from the Bucks would you put in there? Jacob Stallings, maybe the catcher? Maybe. Maybe. He's having a good year. Last time I checked, Stallings leads all in all catchers and hits. And he's a good defender, but I don't think he has the name recognition of some other catchers in a national league. Nobody else. Maybe the closer, Richard Rodriguez, but he's been getting blown up lately. He allowed three runs uh, last game or last night in that loss. So real quick, before we go to break here, let's run down all of the starters uh, in the National League here. Buster Posey, he's having a really good year for the Giants. He'll be the starting catcher. Uh, at first base, the Braves, uh, Freddie Freeman. Frazier gets a nod at second. Uh, the Cardinals, Nolan Arenado gets the uh, call at uh, third base, his sixth uh, all-star appearance. Where's shortstop at? <laughs> they don't have shortstop on there. How is that possible? Anyway, uh, in the outfield, uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. from the Braves, uh, Castellanos from the Reds, and also Jesse Winker from the Reds. So the Reds, Cincy, getting two starting outfielders in the All-Star game. where They gave no NL shortstop, but that's bizarre. In the American League, uh, the Royals, Salvador Perez will be the starting catcher. At second base, the Blue Jays, uh, Marcus Simeon. At third base, uh, the Red Sox, Rafael Devers. At shortstop, it's the Red Sox again, uh, Xander Bogart. And the outfield of Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, and uh, Teoscar, Teoscar Hernandez of the Blue Jays. They got It has to be in the story, right? It has to be. 
Like, why wouldn't they have the first baseman? This is just dumb. I hate when they just give me a complete list. That's oh, that's right. right. Uh, Otani is also a starter. Uh, Vlad Jr. is a starter, and Fernando Tatis Jr. is a starter. There you go. Because ESPN listed them in a story, they didn't feel the need to put them in the actual list, which is pretty stupid. Put them in the list. Because people like me don't actually want to read the entire story. Anyway. So there you go. There are your uh, all-star starters. Most of them anyway. The rest of the all-star rosters, all the reserves and whatnot, will be announced on Sunday at 5.30. So there you go. All right. Time for a break. None of that train wreck is over. News and weather coming up. And then we'll come back and talk about Game 5. Pivotal Game 5. Bucks and Hawks last night. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230. WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. Right now, we focus on the NBA playoffs. Pivotal. Game 5 last night in the Eastern Conference Finals. In Milwaukee, Bucks hosted the Hawks with the series tied at two games apiece. One thing we knew before the game, the two biggest stars of the series, the two biggest names, Giannis and Trey Young, would not be playing. Giannis out with the knee injury suffered in Game 4. Young still dealing with the ankle injury that he suffered in Game 3. So we knew... Those two would not be playing. What we didn't know was who was going to step up and help their team get the inside track to the NBA Finals. The answer early on was Bobby Portis Jr. and the Bucks. Offensive rebound, Capella doubled, and Lopez tapped it away. Milwaukee with the 11-point lead, make it 13 as they get down floor for the Bobby Portis jam. And this is a complete opposite of what we saw in Game 4. The aggression, the determination, the desperation, all with the Milwaukee Bucks. 20-7 Bucks. The call on ESPN Radio, early 13-point lead for Milwaukee, who they were absolutely flying out of the gate. Crowd was in a frenzy, and they continued to frenzy. In the first half. Done pass. Oh, it's a turnover. Tried to find Gallinari. Here's Portis. Three on two. Drives off the glass. It goes in for Bobby Portis. 36-19 Milwaukee. Uh, six fast break points. 28 points in the paint. And this is how Milwaukee needs to play. Bucks led by as many as 20 points in the first half. Outscoring the Hawks 28-8 to in the paint in the first quarter alone. Bucks led 36-22 after the first quarter. Hawks, though, made a push in the second quarter to trail by only nine at the half, and they continued that push in the third quarter. Collins on the wing, guarded by Portis, five to shoot. Just gets it to Herter, who dribbles to the free throw line, fades and connects. Well, that's where he's done most of the damage, uh, struggling from that three-point line. Uh, but that mid-range getting the big on him, he creates a little bit of space and knocks down the mid-range Jay. 68-61. That's right, you heard him. Fear the herder. That three-pointer made it a seven-point game, 68-61. Hawks got it all the way down to seven. But, however, 
That is as close as they would ever get because the Bucks' other superstars put the game away. As Middleton uh, dribbles, now he'll pull the trigger over Reddish, and he bags that one. Middleton with 24 points. It's 99-81 Milwaukee. Five for 22 before those two threes go in for Milwaukee. Is this going to be fourth quarter Middleton here in game five? We'll see. Portis dribbling to his right. Handoff Holiday comes off the screen, got the whistle, the shot, count it. And one for Drew Holiday, who's got a 24-point, 11-assist, Game 5 working here in Milwaukee. With Giannis out, four of Milwaukee's starters scored at least 22 points. Portis had a career playoff high 22. Chris Middleton had 26. Drew Holiday had 25. And we can't forget about the big fella, Brooks Lopez, who had a monster game for Milwaukee. Middleton fires a pass inside to Lopez, who turns and puts the hook in. A 30-point game five delivery for Brooke Lopez. Wow. And have they all been in the paint? I don't remember anything outside it. He is dominated in there. 116-102 bucks, two minutes to go. Career playoff high, 33 points for Lopez as the Bucs went on to a 123-112 win and move to within one win of their first NBA Finals appearance since 1974. Lopez, big reason for the Bucs inside dominance. He was 14 of 18 from the floor, 5 for 7 from the foul line. The Bucks outscored the Hawks in the paint 66 to 36. Here's Lopez after the game on TNT. I thought the last two games, games uh, was it three and four, we were a bit slow at the beginning of the game. We came out tonight and just did our best to dominate both ends of the floor as much as possible for the full 48 minutes. Let's listen to this crowd chanting Bobby. Tell me about your teammate. I love it, man. He, he's so incredible. You know, he does a bit of everything for us. He gets the crowd going. He gets us going when he makes big plays, whether it's a steal, offensive rebound, score, and one. He's always bringing energy, playing hard, and I just love that so much about him. I love that guy. Now, you had a terrific game yourself, especially in the paint. What was the defense giving you? You know, uh, I thought we just did a great job of playing together. You know, uh, obviously, Chris, Drew did their normal job of making plays for everyone. And when everyone's scoring, everyone's doing their thing, that's tough for the defense. It's tough for them to make a decision and a commitment. Bobby Portis, Brooks Lopez, both with career playoff highs for the Bucks to carry the load to fill the gap left by the absence of Giannis. That's just absolutely, that's what, that's what you need. You need players to step up in big-time situations. What did Milwaukee head coach Mike Budenholzer think of Lopez's performance? I think there was, you know, great opportunity for him to, you know, I think just get the ball a little bit more, try and use him a little bit more. Um, and he came through big time. Um, you know, there's a couple, um, you know, where he just, you know, he made plays, but he, he did it. He did it in a lot of different ways. He did it in pick and roll. He did it on the offensive glass, um, you know, got to the free throw line. Uh, just an overall, you know, really, really impressive effort. Um, he's such a, such a great teammate. He always wants to be there. He wants to deliver for his team. And, you know, he stepped up big tonight. I heard this on the drive-in to work this morning. And if you were to ask me this question before I heard it, I, I never would have guessed it in a million years. Do you know who the all-time leading scorer is in New Jersey slash Brooklyn Nets history? It's Brooke Lopez. It's, it's Brooks Lopez. <laughs> No idea. No idea. I, I, I could have guessed a hundred times 
and I never would have pegged Brooks Lopez as the Nets' all-time leading scorer. He scored four more points than Buck Williams. I just I thought that was interesting. Coming off his big game last night, you kind of forget how good Lopez was with the Nets. He scored 10,444 points with the Nets. Buck Williams, 10,440. Vince Carter is third. Uh, Richard Jefferson, fourth on that list. Never would have guessed it. Uh, Middleton, by the way, 13 rebounds, 8 assists for the Bucks. Holiday had 13 assists and uh, 6 boards. Bogey Bogdanovich led the Hawks with uh, 28 points. To put a cap on the game, the guys who called it on ESPN Radio, Mark Kessischer and John Barry. Brooke Lopez, 33 points, 7 rebounds, 4 block shots on a night. They didn't have Giannis, and we don't know how long he's going to be out. Lopez, Middleton, Holiday, and Bobby Portis score 106 points, JB, and now the Bucks have a 3-2 series lead. Well, you and I talked before the game that we just felt it was Middleton and Holiday had to be big. We said 50. They gave us 51. Good number. Uh, we knew they had to be right around there, uh, but obviously unexpected to get 33 from Lopez. Uh, he was terrific all night long, dominated the paint, uh, and really it was a knockout blow in the first quarter. 28 points in the paint in the first quarter, uh, primarily Brooke Lopez, but uh, Atlanta was beaten off the dribble, uh, and, and Milwaukee lived in there and, and took a big lead, got it up to 20 yep. in that first quarter. I uh, credit Atlanta for hanging around, uh, but this was Milwaukee all night, and you just wonder, you know, why don't you come with this sort of desperation and attitude and aggression every game of a playoff game? Because if they did that in game four, I believe in Atlanta, when Milwaukee's full strength, they probably are going to win that game. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they needed to get tonight, obviously. Didn't want to go back to Atlanta, down 3-2. So here we go. A one-game opportunity uh, on the road to go to the NBA Finals. We'll see what kind of effort Milwaukee brings, and we'll see who the combatants are. Do we see Trey Young? Do we see Giannis? Uh, who knows? But I know we're going to see a fired-up Atlanta crowd and a fired-up Atlanta Hawk team uh, who's answered the bell seemingly every time they've been asked you this postseason if we see trey young mike budenholzer went with a big lineup right for most of the game what's the strategy there if they can get young back in the lineup that'll be interesting because they've gone small uh, remember since game one uh, they've gone to the small lineup to be able to switch all the screen and rolls with trey young now they stayed big tonight and they switched all the screen and rolls but it was brooke lopez guarding uh, bogdanovich or herder or lou williams i don't know that they're going to like Brooke Lopez out on Trey Young. Uh, and if Trey Young's healthy, uh, he could have a field day with Lopez. But we'll see what Mike Budenholzer uh, cooks up. And I know this, it's going to be a lot of excitement. Uh, you get one game away from the NBA Finals, uh, there will be a fever pitch down in Atlanta, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Brooke Lopez made a little history tonight. He what went did he do? 33 points, seven rebounds, four blocks. He is the fourth buck in postseason history to have 30 points or four block shots. Lou Alcindor, I'm guessing, probably did. Kareem did it twice. Giannis has done it, Giannis. and another name up in the rafters, Marcus Johnson. That's some pretty good company. I like big bucks, and I cannot lie. <laughs> no, you cannot, and it's not a lie. The Milwaukee Bucks are a win away from the NBA Finals. They beat Atlanta in Game 5, 123-112, to Game 6 coming up on Saturday night. John Barry with the Sir Mix-a-Lot reference. <laughs> How great was that? I like big bucks, and I cannot lie. As you may, as you heard him say, 
Game six tomorrow in Atlanta. Game seven, if necessary. Back in Milwaukee on Monday. So what do the Hawks have to do to force that game seven with a win tomorrow? Stephen A. Smith says that's pretty obvious. Well, I think the first things first is you're, you got to hope and pray that Trey Young's going to come back because he's a difference maker. Uh, his long-range sniper ability, his cat quickness, his ability to get into the lane, and more importantly, to draw fouls and to put your bigs in compromising situations defensively, that's something that we can't simply minimize. You're going to need Trey Young back. Hopefully, he'll be able to come back. But I think it's a good sign that we saw Bogdanovich drop 28 tonight. Remember, the first three games of this series, he was hobbled with that knee injury. But over the last couple of games, he's come on a bit strong and more assertively offensively since uh, Drew, uh, since uh, Trey Young's gone out of the game. You're getting more offensive production from Lou Williams as well. That's going to have to continue. They're going to have to get a collective effort. And I think John Collins is going to have to get considerably more involved offensively. You need to make sure he gets the ball, him and Gallinari, along with, obviously, Lou Williams and Bogdanovich in the event that Trey Young is not there. They'll feed off the home crowd. They'll be energized. I think a game like tonight ensures that Giannis won't play in game six because if you're the Milwaukee Bucks, why jeopardize it if you don't have to? You want to give him as much rest as you possibly can so he'll be available come uh, come NBA Finals if they were to advance past this series. But I think you with tonight's win, you ensure he won't be there. So if you're the Atlanta Hawks, you're not expecting to have to worry about him. And as a result, with or without Trey, you have the personnel capable of feeding off of that home crowd Interesting point by Stephen A. right there. The Bucks don't have to rush Giannis back. They have a game in their pocket. If they lose tomorrow, they rest him a little bit, and hopefully they get him back for Monday if they need him. If they pull it off tomorrow, then he rests even more. The Hawks, more important, they get Trey Young back than the Bucks get Giannis back right now. Now, the Hawks prove, though, they can win without Trey Young. They did it in Game 4. But I don't think they don't want to go into tomorrow's game and take that chance once again. Now, it all depends. It's not like you know they have a choice. If he can't go, he can't go. But that would be a big boost for them, obviously. If he can go tomorrow in Atlanta and Giannis is still on the bench for the Bucs. All right, uh, one more break and then back to wrap up our number one. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230. WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. All right, uh, so the NFL has, I guess, dropped a hammer on the Washington football team. Uh, depends on how you look at it, really. Uh, they find the team $10 million, uh, as a result of its investigation into the team's workplace culture. The league said the money will, quote, be used to support organizations committed to character education, anti-bullying, health relationships, and related topics, end quote. Now, of course, the investigation uh, was launched by the NFL after several, several allegations by several uh, former uh, WFT employees, uh, sexual misconduct, uh, bullying, uh, creating a toxic workplace, on and on and on. So after the investigation, NFL, their punishment, again, quote-unquote punishment, was fining the team. No, look, $10 bucks. It's a lot of money. 
even for a guy like Danny Boy, Daniel Snyder, 10 mil is 10 mil. That's, that's a good chunk. But I think a lot of people expected more, more punishment, like draft picks and whatnot. Some people even wanted Daniel Snyder removed. But the NFL does the investigation, and they decide that a $10 million fine is enough uh, with more, here's uh, Adam Schefter. And it is one of the stiffest fines that the NFL ever has handed down. And it is appropriate. But at the same time, there were no suspensions, as you pointed out. There were no loss of draft picks. And this is for a case in which there were no legal charges against anybody in the Washington organization. But a law firm in Washington interviewed over 150 current and former employees And they found an organization that sounded like it was run out of a cesspool, where there was harassment, where there was intimidation, where there was bullying, where there was women who did not feel safe in that particular work environment. And so the league handed down a figure that certainly sounds stiff, but in a way, it's not very much considering the fact that there were no suspensions and there were no loss of draft picks in this particular case. So in case you missed it earlier this week, uh, Tanya Snyder was named the team's co-CEO. And she will uh, take over day-to-day duties and represent the team at league functions for the next several months. Dan Snyder will focus on a new stadium plan and other type matters. As part of this, again, punishment, all senior executives, including the Snyders, will take part in training in workplace conduct, which will cover topics like bullying, diversity and inclusion, uh, LGBTQ issues, microaggression, and unconscious bias, whatever, I'm not even sure what that is. Now, Dan Snyder released a statement after the league released its, you know, its result of the investigation. He says, quote, I have learned a lot in the past few months about how my club operated and the kind of workplace that we had. It is now clear that the culture was not what it should be. But I did not realize the extent of the problems or my role in allowing that culture to develop and continue. I know that as the owner, I am ultimately responsible for the workplace. I have said that and I say it again, end quote. He then went on to say that he feels remorse for the people who had uh, difficult traumatic experiences and on and on. He said he's truly sorry, can't turn back the clock, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I don't know if I believe any of that, to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm sure he's remorseful. Maybe he's a little sorry. But the fact that he had no clue, how do you have no clue? Now, I understand running a big organization operation like a NFL franchise Things can get lost in the shuffle. You have a lot of people. You have a lot of moving pieces. You have a lot of employees. It's a little more difficult to keep tabs on everybody as opposed to, like, if you have a business of, like, 10 employees. You know what I mean? But this whole, you know, I had no idea the extent of the problems. I just, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. I think, and this is my opinion, he knew a lot of stuff that was going on, and he just let it happen. Now, Lisa Banks and Deborah Katz, who represented uh, 40 former employees, they were not happy about the NFL's decision. 
They said in a statement the NFL chose to, quote-unquote, protect owner Dan Snyder and said the fine amounted to pocket change. Again, $10 million is still a lot of money. Even for a guy as rich as Dan, $10 million is a lot, a lot of cash. And they want the report to be made public. But uh, Beth Wilkinson, who was the attorney who conducted the investigation for the NFL, uh, she orally submitted her findings and recommendations to the league. So I guess if you just tell them there's no paper trail, you can't release it publicly if she just told them. So there you go. There you go. Uh, see, they went on their statement to say this is, it's outrageous, a slap in the face to the hundreds of women and former employees who came forward to report a culture of abuse at all levels of the team, including by Snyder himself. So they're not happy with the result. A lot of people aren't happy with the result. A lot of people just don't like Daniel Snyder, period. And for, let's face it, good reason. $10 bucks is a lot of money. In this situation, when you have several hundreds of people coming out and saying that this workplace culture was toxic, it was terrible, it was awful, usually when you have that many people, where there's smoke, there's fire. I think the NFL kind of dropped the ball here. They could have really made a statement by suspending people, by costing the team draft picks. I mean, really dropping the hammer. Ten million bucks is a lot of money. But in this instance, it wasn't nearly enough. It wasn't nearly enough to, let's say, deter other owners from allowing a workplace culture like this. It wasn't enough. They should have done more. So I kind of agree with the statement that uh, they let him skate because they did. All right. uh, Hour number one done. Hour number two around the corner doing push-ups. Stick around. WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. A reminder, coming up here in a few minutes, our Rush Friday feature, my main man, Joe Shuda, catching up with former Allegheny High School Standout superstar, Major League pitcher Aaron Laffey is the focus of today's feature. But uh, first, one more time this morning, let's rock around the region. I want to rock right now. And we'll start with Major League Baseball, where the Brewers and Pirates opened a four-game series last night in Pittsburgh. Milwaukee was looking to extend their longest win streak in seven years, and because they were playing the Pirates, uh, they did. Jackie, line drive down the right field line. It's a fair ball and up against the wall on a hop. Jackie digging for second base. Here comes the throw. It's offline. It's an RBI double for Jackie Bradley Jr. The call on WTMJ 7-2, the final Brewers win to extend their win streak to nine games, their longest since April of 2014. They have outscored opponents 66-23 during the win streak. Uh, Ben Gamble homered. Jacob Stallings had two of the Pirates' six hits. They have scored a total of four runs in the last four games. Elsewhere, the Dodgers and Nationals opened a four-game set in D.C., and Mother Nature got in the way. But not before Max Muncy made his presence felt for L.A. one Fly ball, right field, and it is gone! A grand slam home run for Max Muncy! The call on AM570 LA Sports second career granny for Muncie. 
gave the Dodgers a 6-2 lead in the fifth inning, and that's the way the game ended. A tornado warning forced the game to be stopped before the start of the sixth inning, so L.A. got the 6-2 win in five. Uh, Dodgers have won six straight games. Nats had their four-game win streak snapped. Juan Soto and Starling Castro each an RBI single for Washington. Orioles were off yesterday. They open a weekend series tonight at the Angels. High school baseball and softball, the West Virginia AAA All-State teams were announced for both sports on Thursday. In softball, Washington's Maddie Ruffner and Brittany Cernate were first-team All-State selections. Their teammate, Camden Noland, received honorable mention, as did Hampshire's Maggie Odom. On the baseball side, Jefferson put three players on the All-State first team. Riley Vadez, Cullen Horowitz, and Zach Rose. Muscleman's Blake Hartman, also named to the first team. Hedgesville's Kyle West, a second-team selection. Hampshire's Grant Landis and West Landis received honorable mention. Uh, speaking of honors, in college football, former West Virginia defensive standout Daryl Talley will become just the fourth Mountaineer ever to have his number retired. Talley will have his number 90 retired uh, when the Mountaineers host Texas Tech on October 2nd. He will join a Sam Huff's number 75 Ira Rat Rogers, his number 21, and Bruce Bosley's number 77 as the only numbers to be retired. Uh, Tally was a consensus All-American and is a member of the WVU Athletics Hall of Fame. Still holds the program record with 484 total tackles. Now, of course, he moved on to have a 14-year career in the NFL, 12 of those years with Buffalo, where he is still the Bills' all-time leading tackler. And one final honor, the Pirates' Adam Frazier was named the starter at second base for the National League in this year's uh, Major League All-Star Game in Colorado. And the NFL note we talked about in the first hour, the Washington football team fined $10 million bucks by the NFL after their investigation into the workplace culture uh, there in Washington. And that is uh, your Rock Around the Region brought to you by the Caporelli Group. All right, that is done. I kind of rushed through it because I wanted to get to this right now. My main man, Joe Shuda, catch all his stuff on his website, 2MinuteTO.com. That's the number 2, MinuteTO.com. Has another Rush Friday feature for us today. Joe catches up with former Allegheny High standout, one of Cumberland's finest to ever come out of the area, former Major League pitcher Aaron Laffey. It's time for the Rush Friday feature with Joe Shuda. My guest on the Rush Friday feature pitched in all the parts of eight major league seasons. Aaron Laffey, thanks for taking the time to talk about life before, during, and after Major League Baseball. Absolutely. Ready to go. Well, what was life like for you growing up athletically in the Cumberland area? Uh, I was a three-sport kid all the way up until eighth grade. So I played baseball, basketball, and football growing up here in the area and just Tried to be involved in as many athletic things as possible. Into ninth grade, I decided to just stick with baseball and basketball. And football, you know, just with a high injury rate, we just thought that was the best decision to stay away from contact sport like that. I was a quarterback, so just with the risk of getting tackled and landing on the shoulder and stuff like that. So just really involved in athletics, really trying to do as many different sports as possible. Just enjoyed being outside and 
and the, the work side and the practice side, and that's kind of what we've transitioned to kind of with what I'm doing now after the game. We are joined by Aaron Laffey on the Rush Friday feature. Most people start to figure out at about 14, 15, 16 if they're above average in certain areas. And, of course, athletically, what about for you? At what point did you say to yourself, I think I have that ability baseball-wise that I can do more than just play at the high school level? Uh, it was probably around right in that range, probably 13, probably a little bit earlier, just because in our area we've never had that range. You know, like back in the day they used to have Pony League, which was the 54-foot mound. Well, they don't have that around here for the 13-year-olds. So going from the little field to the big field, and that's kind of where like the separator happens, I think, in this area is the kids that are really good on a little field, but then whenever you get into going straight into a 60-foot mound and 300-foot lines and stuff like that, that's kind of when you can see the separator. And, and after Little League, I mean, my dad and I were really big on long toss and being off a mound almost every day. So my dad and I would long toss three or four times a week, and we'd throw bullpens at least three or four times a week. When I was about 13 years old, I went to, when they used to hold the local kind of uh, Braves and Pirates kind of mini camp tryout in the area, used to have the traveling little scout camps. And when I went to one of those, I hit, I think, 82 when I was 13 years old from a 60-foot mound. And that's kind of the time I was like, you know, wow, this could really be something a lot more than just playing at the high school level. So throwing so hard so young, I think that was just kind of set the light bulb off. And then I was always a hard worker, but I think that's what really kind of got me going and geared me towards wanting to try to make a profession out of it. My goal went from going to college to, well, let's forget about college. I want to go pros soon as I can. You were drafted in 16th round in 2003. That decision to sign a professional contract, you say you definitely wanted to do that, but were you sort of torn between, well, maybe a couple years in college would make a difference? Not really. I actually had a full ride to Virginia Tech, and I think that's part of the reason some teams kind of held back, because I actually had three calls in the third round. The Atlanta Braves had three draft picks that year in the third round, and they called me actually before every pick and asked me if I would take X amount of money. And at that point, I was like, well, I mean, I, I really wanted to get started in my career as quick as I can. And I told them yes all three times, all three offers, and they never ended up drafting me. You know, I slid down after that, and actually the draft that year was on my high school graduation night. I slid down in the draft, so we sat there and we were listening to the draft because it was just over the internet. We had to listen to it online. So it got to like the sixth or seventh round, and I hadn't been drafted yet, and I was projected to be third through fifth round. So after it got past the fifth round, I was kind of disappointed. You know, I was kind of disappointed that I hadn't been drafted yet. And I actually stood up in my line to go up to get my diploma for my high school graduation, and I turned around and looked at my parents. My parents were all making like the, the wahoo sound, like kind of hitting their hands on their, their mouths and like chopping their hands. And I was like, you know, finally I could figure out from the from the charade game we were playing that I was drafted by the Indians in the 16th round. So that was a pretty cool moment. But I had to actually pitch the entire summer in Northern Virginia in the Clark Griffith League. So it wasn't like I got drafted and then signed right away due to the limited 
competition in our area and the size of our area in baseball, I didn't give up a run my senior year. So I was throwing hard. I had good stuff, but they wanted to see how that stuff played against better competition. So I went down to the Northern Virginia area and played in the Clark Griffiths Woodbat College League, and I was playing against all freshmen and sophomores in college as a high school senior. Uh, and I went down there, and after my five starts, I think the second rounder that year for the Indians didn't sign, and that freed up a lot of money for them. So I ended up signing for like high third-round money. I actually signed for more money than any of the three offers I got from the Braves. So in the long run, you know, it took a little bit longer than expected. But, you know, after pitching down in Northern Virginia for five starts, that's when I signed. And the whole time, I mean, I wanted to play. I, I wanted to forego college and start playing professionally as quick as I could. Aaron Laffey joins us on the Rush Friday feature. I talked to so many guys who obviously you were one of the better players in your area and now you're against all the better players, but they say that they had doubts at times when they had a rough start or whatever. You know, it's a bumpy road to the majors. You know, you're a little insecure at times and other times you feel really good. What about for you? I never went through that kind of lack of confidence. I know when they told me that I was getting demoted and going down from high A to low A, I was pretty upset. I mean, I was definitely crushed. I mean, I came out after the talk and I was extremely upset. The fact that that was the first time I'd ever really actually failed at baseball in my entire life. So, you know, it, it took until I was in low A ball in Lake County, Ohio, for me to experience failure on the baseball field. That was really hard to swallow, but at the same time, that was my motivating factor to continue to progress and get better. But I don't think I ever went through that, like, doubtful stage at all. August 4th, 2007, your debut. What do you remember from that day? I arrived in Minnesota the same day that the bridge collapsed. It was a very tragic day, actually, in, in, in Minneapolis, and um, I actually arrived there that same day. That definitely sticked out. But on the positive side is I just remember walking through the clubhouse because I was in Major League Spring Training, you know, that year. So I'd, I'd already gotten to know some of the guys. But I'm walking through the clubhouse and Trot Nixon, you know, the first person that said anything to me was Trot Nixon. And he just said something really funny and it really helped. Uh, probably not radio worthy. <laughs> Keep it PG. But he just said something really funny and it just kind of helped break the ice and just kind of ease everything. So I, I felt really comfortable. I felt really at home. I'd already known all the guys from spring training. And so there was no kind of like antsiness about meeting new people or anything like that. My first pitch of the game, I did almost hit the batter in the head, it was left on left. So my first major league pitch, I almost domed the guy with my first pitch of the game. But after that, I kind of settled in and really didn't feel anything too different. I, I didn't feel like I was overly amped or overly geeked up. I felt really good. The only thing about it is I actually balked later in the game and put a runner in scoring position. And then the next guy grounded out, and that ground out produced that run that I balked in the scoring position that ended up being the run that cost me the win. So funny how you remember all the little details like that when you start to talk about it. You were with Cleveland from 2007 through 2010. Then you're traded to Seattle. What was your feeling? Uh, that's because I asked for the trade about 15 times. <laughs> so I didn't want to be there anymore. Uh, they had a change of the guard with the GM. The GM that drafted me and that I had kind of come up with, he became the president and went to kind of the more business side of operations. The 
assistant GM took over, and I just didn't feel like I was being valued. I had a lot of guys getting opportunities over me, even though I was outperforming them day in and day out, week in and week out. So I just kind of felt like it was time for me to move on. I felt like I would be able to flourish. And I didn't have a real good relationship with the manager. I wasn't real high on the GM. So I just asked them actually at the end of the year, the previous year in 2000, in 2010, at the end of the year, I went into my meeting at the end of the year and I said, I would think it would be best if you guys could trade me. And then I kind of got traded at a really weird time. I mean, nobody really gets traded during spring training. But, you know, Eric Wedge and Carl Willis were the manager and pitching coach when I was with Cleveland my whole time. They ended up getting let go, and then they got hired by Seattle. So when they went to Seattle, that was definitely they wanted me to come there, and they saw me as a valuable piece uh, to what they could do in Seattle. So it all kind of worked out. I mean, 2011, the first half of the year was by far the best I had ever done. It was I only had two points in my entire career where I was either strictly a starter for the entire season or strictly a reliever. So the one year I was strictly a starter, I had 17 wins across three levels. And the one year I was strictly a reliever, the first half of the season, I was one of the top three lefty relievers in the big leagues. I had like a 170 ERA and 44 innings at the All-Star break. So um, it was just kind of hard because I was always that swing man getting bounced back and forth. I, was at, I had a lot of adversity. I could start, relieve, long relief, whatever it may be. So I kind of got pinholed as that kind of long guy, you know what I mean, back-end starter, long man type thing. And uh, that was kind of something I battled against my whole career. But, um, yeah, the thing is with Cleveland to Seattle, I mean, I had asked for that the previous year um, to be traded. So I was very relieved and excited about getting a fresh start and going to a new place. You bounce around. You went to the Yankees. Uh, then the next year, Toronto, the Mets, Blue Jays, Colorado. So what are you thinking at that point? You're saying that you're sort of that guy who he can be a starter, he can be a reliever, but you said you also didn't feel appreciated. How did you feel at that point in your career? Well, it's just kind of one of those things. You're just looking for the best fit. You're looking for who has the opportunities, who has what in their uh, rotation, what they have in the bullpen. So it's just kind of one of those things where you're just trying to find the right fit and just kind of seeing where you could have the most success, provide the team with the best option and be that guy. So I always, obviously, you know, you don't start your career out thinking you're going to be a journeyman, but it's taken me a lot of different places. I've met a lot of, a lot of people you know, I've created a lot of really good friendships and bonds and connections and you know, it's not exactly, you know, would I have liked to have stayed in one place and had a long-term contract and all that stuff, of course. But I think looking back on it, man, I, I got to experience so many different places, meet so many different people. And it's really helped me now the way that I've grown as a person and the way that I'm able to kind of communicate and pass down the knowledge that I've gained. You know, I've had the opportunity to play with numerous guys that are going to be in the Hall of Fame. I've had numerous coaches who either are in the Hall of Fame or had long-term, super successful careers. And I've just been fortunate to get to learn and grow and become a better player, a better person, a better coach and instructor, and able to pass down not just the game, but more importantly, learn from all the life lessons that I was able to, to gather from going through so many adverse situations and put in new environments, meeting new people, and being in different cultures, playing in Mexico and playing for Team USA over in Taiwan and Japan and get to experience all these different things. So final moments with Aaron Laffey on the Rush Friday feature. 
On June the 7th, 2018, you made the decision to voluntarily retire. What were your feelings when you made that final decision? Uh, I mean, going into that last start, I knew I was done. I was kind of holding on because my whole thing was, number one, I wanted to leave the game. I didn't want the game to leave me. So I wanted to make the decision to hang it up. I never wanted to play for the pay. I wanted to play because I knew I could still pitch at the big league level. Um, And it kind of started in 2015. I mean, 2015, I had a great year, especially after the All-Star break in Albuquerque. I pitched phenomenally in Albuquerque. To me, is one of the hardest places in all professional baseball to pitch at 5,700 feet. So um, I had a great year. I didn't get called. I made three appearances that year, pitched really well for the Rockies. But then I pitched really well in the second half in the in Triple A, and then I didn't get called up because they were a non-competitive team. So there's no reason to call up a veteran guy in the middle of no, you know, they were 22 games back or whatever it was. Uh, then the next year, I had another pretty good season. Then in 17, I started out by going to spring training in Mexico to play for the Tijuana Toros. I ended up leaving there. Then I got picked up by the Reno Aces. Uh, and I pitched extremely well for them. And in the middle of a nine, I had, I think, a nine-start run where I had like a 1.3 ERA in the PCL. And there was two or three different moments in that uh, where I could have gotten called up, where they needed a starter. And when I was nine starts with a 1.3, in my mind, that was kind of the end because I was like, man, it does. It really doesn't matter how well I do. It doesn't matter because I, I couldn't do any better. You know what I mean? In the In the Pacific Coast League, the hardest league to pitch in. You're always pitching at high altitude. Um, and to pitch so well and then to just not get that call up, it wasn't defeating. It's just kind of like, okay, well, it just doesn't really matter how well I do. Um, I'm probably not going to make it back to the show. So I always only was playing because I felt like I could still pitch in the big leagues. But then it was kind of a disappointing moment, I guess, to come to the realization that no matter how well I do, they're not going to call me up just because I didn't fit the new mold. You know, that was 2017. The new mold is high velocity. And I was 30 years, <laughs> over 30 years old. You know what I mean? If you're over 30 years old in the big leagues now. I mean, it's like you got dust on you and you're ancient. Once you start doing the route where you're Mexico, independent ball, back into organizational ball, for me, I didn't want to be that guy that was just holding on and just playing to get paid. I never wanted to play the game, and my whole reason for playing the game wasn't for the paycheck. So when it became you're playing to get paid, that was time for me to go. And you know, I ended up having the worst outing of my entire career and maybe the worst outing of anybody's career, my last outing at AAA for the Mets out in Las Vegas, but I didn't care. Every homer I gave up, every double in the gap, I just didn't care. There was no fire. There was no drive left. And I walked off the field and I said, well, fellas, that's it. I'm going home. And everybody was just like, oh, man, like, he's for real. So then I went in, I packed up my bags, I went and talked to the manager. And it's actually a big relief because my kids for two or three years was like asking me not to play. And during that same time frame, I'm going through the Mexico independent ball back to organizational ball system. And that's just not a fun place to be. If you could change anything about your career, what would it be? Um, I think maybe just kind of identifying I'm going to be just a starter or just a reliever, probably just a reliever. There was a time when the Pirates wanted to bring me in as just a reliever, and at the time I was really set on still being a starter because I was still pretty young. As a lefty, you know what I mean, you have that time frame until now because of the switch of the bullpens, but 
there was an instance where I was in the mindset, my agent and I agreed, we're looking for a starter job and we're looking to be strictly a starter for this year. And at that time, I had an offer from the Pirates to join the Pirates and have an opportunity at the big league bullpen as just a reliever. So I had the Blue Jays that was just was mainly only starting and I had the Pirates that was just being a reliever. So maybe that little instance there, if I would have taken just the reliever route, it wouldn't have taken as much of a toll on my body, kind of where I was kind of a victim of my versatility. I was able to do both. I'd always done both. I came up as a starter, had bullpen experience in the minor leagues as a piggyback starter. So, I mean, that would be the only kind of thing where I could either chose the reliever or chose the starter thing, and that may or may not have made a difference. But, I mean, the way my career played out, more than likely than not, I would have been the guy that, well, we don't have a starter today. Now, you're, hey, laugh, you're going to start. I'm not one to look back. I'm always one to kind of learn from the past to make the future better. So I don't think I would really change anything. As you look back over all those years and all those teams and places and guys you played with, can you relate a funny or bizarre situation that happened? The coolest thing I could kind of think of was back in 2007 as a rookie, I made the playoff roster. We're going back to Boston. So I was a rookie. The rookies, the whole thing was you had to wear the princess backpack and carry the stuff to and from the bullpen if you're in the bullpen. So we're all getting ready to go out. <laughs> I'm getting ready to, to go. Well, I didn't know what was going on before the game or anything like that. You know what I mean? How they do the pregame festivities and all that stuff. So I'm in the clubhouse getting ready. I get everything on. I'm ready to go. I get my glove. I pick up my pink princess backpack and I start to head out down to the dugout in Fenway. And then I come out in the Fenway. And I walk up onto the field, and they pull out this flatbed trailer into the middle of the outfield. And there's drums and guitars and all this set up. And then all of a sudden, the dropkick Murphys come out and come up on stage. And 40 Irish jig dancers dressed in you know the Irish jig attire. So I'm walking across Fenway's outfield along the line of the grass behind shortstop with my little pink princess backpack. And there's a full-blown concert happening i mean dropkick murphy's are playing shipping up to boston the place is sold out people are going nuts singing word for word with them the dancers are going around the trailer and dancing and doing all this crazy stuff there i am just kind of walking across the outfield right in front of the stage with my pink princess backpack and i was like man this is insane this is a dream like this is this doesn't even feel like it's really happening this doesn't feel real that's the thing that kind of stuck out most to me is like to just be walking across that in my pink princess backpack from a sold out stadium in Fenway with the dropkick Murphys playing and dancers going on like the middle of a concert. It was just kind of a, a crazy moment. Did you keep the backpack as one of your memorabilia pieces? <laughs> I didn't. I should have. I should have kept the backpack because that was a, a really awesome moment. But that would have been a great one to have. To, trying to explain that. Why do you have this princess backpack? Finally, Aaron, what's the future for you and what are you currently doing? The future for me is definitely based in baseball and it's based around youth development. So that's, I run a facility here in Fort Ashby, West Virginia called the Wheelhouse Academy. So we do baseball and basketball training as well as sports performance training. We have a next generation fitness lab, which is all artificial intelligence based machinery, uh, active resistance exercise biomechanical analysis. So we start with our kids as young as five and six years old to give them a baseline. Uh, we start our travel teams at nine years old. So we have 
seven current teams right now across six different levels, and we're called the Wheelhouse Arsenal. So we, we're heavy on development. So uh, we hate to call it a travel program because our focus isn't on playing. Our focus is on training. So to play for one of our teams, we have a requirement of training of three, six, or nine months, depending on how old they are. So we focus heavily on training, not only on the baseball side and the mechanical side, but we focus on the mental side as well, getting kids to process, be accountable, be a good evaluator, not only of themselves, but of others. We use the me, you, we method uh, for evaluation and getting kids to analyze their game how the coaches are coaching and what the team could do to get better and just trying to help everybody get better individually and as a group. And then the reward is getting a chance to go travel and play in the spring and the summer. So a lot of exciting things going on. We have long-term goals to have a, a complex so we can take the travel out of travel, just focus on development and, and playing home and, and help everybody develop not only as a player, but as a person, which is our most important goal. And so how can they get in touch with you to look into the training aspect of what you're doing? Uh, we have a Facebook page, a website, uh, we're on Instagram, Twitter, but our, our website is whbsacademy.com. Uh, on Facebook, it's at the Wheelhouse Academy. Uh, and we do pretty much everything primarily Facebook and, and our website. Uh, and you can get on there. We have classes. We have uh, a thing called the lab, and that's the Next Generation Fitness Lab. So uh, whether you're whether you're eight to 108 years old, uh, you can come and train in the Next Generation Fitness Lab. So so we just got a lot of things going on. We've got a, we've grown a lot in just three short years. So a lot of exciting things going on, and we're looking forward to the future. Aaron, thanks for joining us on a Rush Friday feature. Best of luck to you. And check into that backpack. Maybe you can issue those to all the kids, right? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it, Joe. Thank you. This is the Morning Rush. So yesterday, the doors blew wide open for all college athletes to make money off themselves. Uh, the name, image, and likeness laws kicked in for about 12 states. And in the midnight hour Wednesday, the NCAA lifted all of the rules. They relaxed the rules that kept athletes from endorsement deals, business ventures, and the like. NCAA athletes will now be able to accept money from businesses in exchange for allowing said business to feature them in advertisements or products. Athletes will also be allowed to use their own status as a college athlete to promote their own public appearances or companies for the very first time. Uh, Paul Feinbaum of the SEC Network, who hates the NCAA more than perhaps anybody on the face of the planet, said yesterday was a monumental step for college athletes. Today is the most significant day in the history of the NCAA, and that is not an understatement. Because of what is crumbling today, the, the model of the NCAA is, is coming down, and you can never put it back up again. The fact that the, the NCAA is really worthless after today is also a very significant moment. It's worthless, he says. The... <laughs> Because of what happened yesterday with the, the NIL, 
the NCAA in one fell swoop is worthless. Now, Feinbaum says that everybody was ready for the name, image, and likeness laws to kick in. Everybody, that is, except for the NCAA. This day has been coming for a long time, and everyone seems prepared. The athletes seem prepared. We in the media have been covering it as competitively and as aggressively as we can. The only people who don't seem to have a clue on July 1st 2021 are the people who are in charge of this, and that's the NCAA. They waited till yesterday to finally put this thing into motion, and the one thing that they were hoping to avoid, that being chaos on July 1st, is exactly what we're going to have today. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. It depends on which state you're in that will determine what kind of rules there are. Uh, the NCAA passed what would only be described as an emergency stopgap to give athletes in states who don't have NIL legislation something to adhere to. But at the end of all of this, it really doesn't matter whether there are rules or not, because no one is really in charge. Who is going to enforce these rules? It is going to be the wild, wild west. The athletes are going to make money, uh, and the schools are going to be looking around like, what can we do about it? And the answer is nothing. And Paul says one of the main reasons why the NCAA dropped the ball, why the NCAA was very, very late in getting on board with the NIL well, was the guy who runs the NCAA, who, as you can tell, that uh, Feinbaum, not a very big fan of. Mark Emmert, who is the president of the NCAA, is, is going to go down in the history books as one of the most ineffective leaders of any organization, uh, anytime, place in this country. And that, that's covering a good bit of ground as we're heading toward the nation's birthday on Sunday. He has offered nothing, and he will offer nothing. He is an empty suit who continues to collect 4 or $5 million a year frankly, by, by giving no opinions, because the people that really run college athletics, and those are the commissioners of the Power Five conferences, they laugh at him behind his back. They're critical of him. They don't want him to do anything, because if he does something, it infringes on their power. They run the sport right now. And that's why he got a contract extension a couple of weeks ago, because nobody wants uh, someone with, with a lot of firepower ideas, creativity, and leadership skills to run this organization right now. Paul. Feinbaum, getting involved. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. My man's pulling no punches. <laughs> what he call him, an empty suit? I told you, uh, Feinbaum hates the NCAA with a passion. I don't know anybody outside of college athletes themselves who were happier yesterday than Paul Feinbaum. Now, again, with this name, image, and likeness deal, Schools still cannot pay athletes directly. All right, They still cannot do that. They cannot basically hire players to come play for. Athletes can, however, hire agents to help with the NIL situation. They can hire lawyers, agents, tax professionals, other professionals to help them out with whatever's going to come down the pike. For instance, the very first player who took advantage of the NIL situation was Miami, Florida quarterback De'Eric King. He was the very first player, the very first NCAA player ever to sign a deal yesterday. He hooked up with college hunks hauling junk, (laughs) which, despite the name, uh, it's a moving company. 
the deal was worth 20000 bucks. So just like that, De'Aaron King, quarterback for the Hurricanes, 20000 bucks richer. He also signed deals with three other companies. So he was prepared. He talked about the NCAA not being ready for this. He said he was ready. The school people got him ready for July first. Twenty thousand bucks for a kid in college. I mean, think about that for a second. And we're going to see more and more of this going down, and we're going to see more and more players making more and more money. Twenty thousand bucks is just the start. It's just the start. And uh, Andrea Edelman of ESPN says it's just going to take a lot of us just getting used to it. I think once people start to understand and realize that this is part of college sports now, I think there'll be a greater level of understanding of what it means for everybody, and it's going to become accepted and normalized, right? So I think Hmm. the unknown right now is what's most scary for fans. But once people start to see that, okay, maybe it's not that big of a deal if a player has a deal for a digital training card and goes out to the local restaurant to have a signing, and it it might not affect the team in that regard. You know what? This is going to be a cluster at first because you have certain states with different laws than other states. Nobody is really, as you heard Feinbaum say, nobody is really in control of this. Like Nobody knows... (laughs) <laughs> like, there's no universal set of rules. And we always hear that, you know, oh, it's going to be the wild, wild west. It, it very well could be early on until things settle. But it, they're really, they're, they're flying without a pilot right now. The, the laws go into effect yesterday, and nobody really knows how to control it. Nobody really knows how to cap it. <laughs> it's going to be a mess. It's going to get messy before it gets clean. You, you know what I mean? But it's here, whether you like it or not. And we can have that discussion as well. Whether this is good for college athletics or not, obviously it's good for the athletes. But it is, is it good for the sports in general? All right, uh, one final break, and then back to wrap things up with an interesting question about NIL. Stick around, WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. Uh, Before we get out of here, let's check on the player who delivered, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. How about the Bucks of Brooks Lopez? Middleton fires a pass inside to Lopez, who turns and puts the hook in. A 30-point Game 5 delivery for Brook Lopez. Wow. And have they all been in the paint? I don't remember anything outside it. He is dominated in there. 116-102 Bucks, two minutes to go. The call on ESPN Radio with Giannis out with an injury. Lopez stepped up, went for a career playoff high 33 points to lead Milwaukee to a 123-112 win over Atlanta in Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Finals. The Bucks killed the Hawks inside. 28 points in the paint in the first quarter, 44 in the paint in the first half. Milwaukee now one win away from its first NBA Finals appearance since 1974. Brooks Lopez, our player who delivered, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. All right, now last segment, uh, we were talking about the name, image, and likeness laws kicking in yesterday around, uh, well, the country. College athletes can now make money off themselves. 
And we said that the Miami, Florida quarterback, Derek King, the very first athlete to sign a deal, $20,000 deal with a moving company. And I saw this question posted online. And maybe we'll get into it more on Tuesday, running out of time today. What if, if the NIL laws were you know in place like forever? That athletes could do this from the beginning of time. What players, and we'll strictly talk football here, what players from Pitt, West Virginia, and Maryland would have raked in the most money, the most cash, if they could, you know, if they had those laws in place back when they played? And immediately, looking at Pitt, it would have been guys like Marino, right? Dan Marino, uh, Tony Dorsett. Mike Ditka, right? I mean, my goodness. Even a guy like uh, Craig Ironhead Hayward, right? He, you got a guy named Ironhead playing college football in Pittsburgh. If that doesn't have an Iron City <laughs> endorsement written all over it, I don't know what does. You look at West Virginia. Who would have made the most money? I mean, think about it. Ask yourself that. Of all the football players that came through, who would have taken advantage the most from the NIL laws? Pat White, probably. Uh, Sam Huff, way back in the day. Major Harris would have definitely been, definitely been high endorsement quality. Who was, uh, who was the guy who kept on breaking face masks? Who was oh, Schmidt? Owen Schmidt, trying to tell me. That somebody wouldn't have latched on to him at some point for an endorsement deal. This dude's right. Didn't he like bust a couple of face masks in college because he hit people the fullback, right? Oh, he would have made some cash. Maybe some uh demolition company or something like that. Maryland Boomer Esiason would have made money hand over fist if he was allowed to make money in college off of himself. Who else from Maryland? That the list isn't long. All apologies to the Terps. That Randy White, maybe. Maybe a guy like Frank Wycheck. Right? He he was a Terp. Maybe he rakes in some cash, like with a a, a check cashing company. <laughs> right? I mean, it would have been endless, endless possibilities, and that's just football. Think of all the basketball stars that that that, that, that come through. Even baseball, softball, women's basketball. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be nuts. I look at a situation, uh, the kid from Illinois, uh, Kofi Coburn, their superstar from last year. Do you see he entered the uh, the transfer portal yesterday? I mean, he was their best player. Well, first, he entered the, uh, the NBA draft, and he has until Wednesday to, to withdraw his name. Then he entered the transfer portal yesterday. He is by far the best player in the portal. Almost 18 points a game last year, last season, 10 rebounds. Now, he was a big reason why Illinois had a number one seed in the tournament. You trying to tell me? Now, don't get me wrong. Illinois is one of those states that have their own NIL laws. So, and he hasn't ruled out going back to Illinois. But you're trying to tell me that he's in the portal and you're not going to have schools 
saying, hey, come, come with us for a year. And we, and some, it's different in some states. Some schools are allowed to line up endorsement deals for their play, athletes. Some schools aren't. Depends on the state. Trying to tell me with Kofi Coburn in the transfer portal that schools and programs, hey, hey, Kofi, come play with us. We'll hook you up with, you know, this restaurant, this car dealership. You can make tons of money if you come play for us with these new laws in place. It's going to be nuts. It's going to be a cluster. Again, like I said, it's going to get messy before it gets clean. But this is what people wanted. And now we're going to see how it plays out. I'll make an extensive list. Now, we'll get more into this on Tuesday. Remember, no show on Monday. All right, uh, we're done here. Amanda's coming up next with Tri-State Today. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Please uh, be safe. Don't blow anything up, or anybody for that matter. And we'll see you next week right here on WCMD. Bye.